Well, we've entered Advent season as the, the four weeks before Christmas. You can see we've uh, got decorations up here, was put up uh, last week. We have now a theme, which is hope for this, this Christmas season. It's really designed to prepare our hearts for the celebration of our Lord, the birth of our Lord. And um, this Sunday, for the first Sunday in Advent, I want to continue on in the book of Revelation. And you might be thinking, like, well, if this is, is, is Revelation really an Advent text? And I say, actually, yes, it is. Because in many church calendars that we're following, the first week of, uh, of Advent focuses on the word hope. It's like the hope of prophecy. Now, oftentimes we think about the hope of the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. But it does include the hope of the prophecy of the second coming of Messiah. And, and this is Advent hope, right? The, the coming of Jesus isn't merely focused on his first coming. It's his first coming is preparation for what he's going to be doing in his second coming. And so I think in that way, Revelation is the perfect book really for us to consider this morning. So I invite you to take your Bibles, open them up to Revelation chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible in the chair in front of you, there's a, um, a Bible certainly there. Turn to the back of the book, Revelation chapter 15. And, and this chapter really is a, is a chapter of victory. It's the, the calm, if you will, before the storm. The title of my message this morning is The Song of Victory. It gets really at the heart of Revelation 15. Now, before we actually dig into this text, I want us to just kind of step back just a little bit and just look at the flow of what's been happening in the book of, of Revelation. In, in the second half of chapter 11, uh, we saw the, the loud voices singing in triumph or saying in, vice, in triumph, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's about victory. It's, it's about how God wins in the end. It's a, it's a great uplifting passage. And then in chapter 11, we see the cosmic battle. Michael waging war with his angels against dragon and his angels. In chapter 13, we see the earthly battle with two beasts waging war against the saints. And so this conflict and this, this difficulty in the battle. And then with chapter 14, right, there's, there's like this, this, this other on the other side. There's a picture of glory with a lamb standing in victory on Mount Zion with 144 standing with him, fully redeemed and following the lamb wherever he goes. And then chapter 14 continues on with judgment, the wrath of God being poured out on those who worship the beast, the wrath of God coming in full strength against them. And we see this back and forth in Revelation. We see the, the victory coming, and then we see the conflict, and then the victory and triumph, and then the conflict. It kind of goes back and forth. It's almost as if God knows in Revelation that, that we can only take so much judgment, like that, that at some point we get some judgment, but then he says, listen, there's hope. There's hope. And in fact, you even see that after the end of the seals. The seals are in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, you, you see those who are sealed, the great multitude coming out of the great tribulation before the trumpets of chapters 8 and 9. And then we see here, going back and forth, the chapter 11, victory with God on the throne, chapters 12 and 13, wars in heaven and earth, Satan and the beast taking the upper hand. And then chapter 14, the lamb in victory. And then chapter 14, the full measure of God's wrath coming out on the unbelieving world. Well, today is a, like a good day. Today is a victory day. We come to chapter 15, and we're going to see the victory side of thing before chapter 16, where again we return to God's wrath. And we'll return to that uh, sometime in the new year after we uh, have some Advent messages. Um, but the book of Revelation merely isn't, isn't merely just a, a book speaking about the judgment on the evil world. It gives us these interludes of hope, of victory along the way. And that's what we see this morning. 
So let's read our text. Revelation 15. I'm going to read the whole entire chapter. John is writing what he saw. He's writing in a book. He's sending it to these seven churches. He says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked. And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to these seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power And no one can enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. My first point comes in verse 1. We see a sign. Because that's what John sees. That's what he says. If you look at verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven. He called this sign great and amazing. His sign was that he saw these seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. Now, As you think about this, I'm not quite sure how John saw seven angels with seven plagues. See, because plagues aren't something that you carry or that you wear on your belt or that you set beside you, because plagues are like events. They're more like like verbs, if you will. I mean, plagues is a noun, but it it, it like acts itself out. Like plagues are are diseases and afflictions, which are difficult to to picture along with uh, these seven angels. And so, as I've done throughout this whole series of preaching through Revelation, I've often like searched the internet for maybe an image of, of something maybe that John saw, of what it would be like. And so I searched. I, I searched for seven angels, seven plagues, Revelation 15, and I found nothing. I was just thinking, like, how would someone picture that? And, and I think that it's because plagues are something you really can't picture so well. Remember, right, this is apocalyptic literature where really almost anything goes to make a point. And so we can understand seven angels, seven plagues. Even we can't understand what John was, was exactly seeing. Um, maybe they had signs that said plagues. I, I, don't, I don't know what they had. But somehow they had these seven angels, seven plagues. And then John comments on these plagues. He says, these are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. That's the last, right? We've seen the seals. We've seen the trumpets. And soon we're going to see these bowls and these plagues poured out on them. In fact, if we read forward to the end of the chapter, we see that these plagues correspond with the bowls that these angels are given. If you look at verse 7, it says this, And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And in chapter 16, then, we're going to see these angels pouring out their bowls upon the earth 
and plagues come upon the earth as a result of their bulls. The first bull comes in verse 2. If you look there, chapter 16, verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Right? The, the sores are a plague. Like a plague. We don't know what these sores look like. We'll get at it later and when we go through chapter 16. We still won't know what they look like. But somehow this plague of sores has come. The second bowl is poured out. We see something similar. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Uh, Again, it's like like a plague where everything in the sea dies. Does this sound familiar? Sores upon people, water turning to blood, and everything in the water dying. Do you remember Exodus where Moses pronounced the the plagues that would come upon Egypt. Do you remember that? I mean, think, of, think and remember this imagery because that's what chapter 15 is about. I mean, if you look at chapter 15, verse 2, it says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast with its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with its harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. Here we see a group of people standing beside a sea, singing the song of Moses with plagues close by. Do you know that Moses has a song? Actually, he has two songs. These are his greatest hits, I guess, in the, in the Bible. The first is in Exodus chapter 15, and the second is in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Exodus 15, right as they come out of, the, of Egypt, they're redeemed out of there. And Exodus 32, right at the end of his ministry. And at this point, it would really be helpful for us to look back and look at these songs. And just because I think that's where all the symbolism comes here. That's all where all the idea comes here of the, of the victory. So turn back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. If you have a pew Bible, we're talking page 57. Exodus chapter 15. The context here is after the ten plagues have been poured out in Egypt. Plagues like the water of Nile turning into blood, all the creatures in the waters perishing, Exodus 7. Plagues like sores and boils that, that came upon man and beast in the land of Egypt, such that the people need to stay at home because it's too painful for them to walk outside because of the pain that they were experiencing. And these plagues just like the first two bulls, what I said. But there are other plagues, right? Frogs are coming and gnats and swarms of insects and darkness and these types of things. But here in, uh, in Exodus chapter 15, we, we see these, these plagues that are, that are born out. And finally, the tenth and last plague, the death of the firstborn throughout the land, was the devastating one. When Pharaoh's firstborn child was dead, he just, he just had it. And he said in Exodus chapter 12, in fact, you can turn back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 31. He said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. Go and bless me also. Like you just realized that the, the hand of God was with them. Just, just get out. My son has died. Yet when Pharaoh came to his senses in chapter 14, you can turn over there, chapter 14, verse 5. When the king of Israel was told the people of, had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. He said, what is this that we've done? We have let Israel go from serving us. Here was cheap labor. And they sent them away. And so they summoned the horses and chariots and, and sent them out after Israel, who was in the wilderness. The aim was to bring them back 
to Egypt. And when the people of, of Israel were wandering in the, in, the, in the wilderness, and then they were kind of stuck at a place near the sea, and then the Egyptians coming, they were kind of hemmed in, and they were afraid. Chapter 14, verse 13. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, similar theme, verse 16, Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on the dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so they will go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. I have a book on my shelf written by Jim Hamilton, or or James Hamilton. And, And the title of this book is God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. And in this book, he traces this theme throughout the entire Bible and even argues that this is the central theme in the Bible. That God gets glory in his salvation through judgment. I just want to read a couple paragraphs for you. He says this. He says, salvation always comes through judgment. Salvation for the nation of Israel at the Exodus came through the judgment of Egypt. And this pattern is repeated throughout the Old Testament, becoming paradigmatic even into the new. When God saves his people, he delivers them by bringing judgment on their enemies. And this is not limited to the Old Testament enemies such as the Philistines. At the cross, the ruler of this world was cast out. At the consummation, Jesus will come to afflict those who afflict his people. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Salvation for all believers of all ages is made possible by the judgment that falls on Jesus at the cross. The cross allows God to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross of Christ, the climactic expression of the glory of God in salvation through judgment, is the turning point of the ages. It's exactly what we see here in Exodus. I'm I'm not sure if you you saw and picked up those words that I read. If you look back in chapter 14 again, verse 3. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. There's salvation. It's going to come through judgment. God told Moses, verse 17, he says, I will get glory over Pharaoh. In verse 18, he says, The Egyptians shall know that I have the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And there you see, right? God's glory, he gets glory in providing salvation for his people through judgment of his enemies. And that's how the story in Exodus continues. Moses stretches out his hand over the sea. The Lord drives back the wind, divides the waters. Israel goes through on the dry ground. Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen pursued in the sea. And when they were in the middle of the sea, Moses once again stretches out his hand. The water comes back upon the Egyptians and they drowned. And we read in chapter 14 and verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel. That day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. There we see God's glory in salvation through judgment. And then we come to the song of Moses. Here it is, chapter 15. And then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, and I'm just going to read much of this. This is Moses teaching the song of of God's glory in their salvation through judgment. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea is judgment. But I'm going to sing to the Lord, give him glory. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Salvation, God's glory in salvation through judgment. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And now he just speaks about what happened. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. But you blew with your wind. The sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Right when they heard of all the power of God, you see this when even Jericho, right? We've heard of your great power, they're scared. Now are the chiefs of Eden, Edom, dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still a stone. Till your people, Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Here's the glory of God in salvation through judgment. The people of Israel, right, glorifying the Lord for the, for the redemption that he has applied. In fact, I mean, the, the whole key of it, the stanza, comes in verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. He's triumphed in destroying our enemies. And in fact, that's what Miriam sang in verse 21. Sort of a, a summary, if you will, of chapter 15. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And by the way, this is exactly what we see in, in Revelation chapter 15. You can turn back there in your Bibles. We come to our, our second point. We've seen the sign, and now we look at the song. Which, by the way, it's really easy. It's chapter summaries. We're talking about that today. 
Exodus 15 is the Song of Moses, and Revelation 15 is the Song of Moses. They just correspond nicely like that. Here's the song. Verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying this. Now this is different than the psalm, song of, of Exodus 15, but it still is called the song of Moses, but it has the same idea. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Notice here just the comparison, right? The scene is the same. You have victorious people standing before the sea. In this case, it's a a sea of glass, which you saw in chapter 4, right? It's before the throne of God, the sea of glass, which just reflects the glory of God, just back onto him, makes him more majestic. And these people are singing. They're they're singing just like they did in in, um, Exodus chapter 15. Now, the context is, though, not all the same. It's a bit different. Because at this point, the salvation is soon to be accomplished. Back in Exodus, they were singing after their salvation had taken place. This, of course, is because, right, this passage here is proleptic, right? You know that word. Anticipating the end, almost as if it is done. There's one major difference here, though. It's not just the song of Moses they sing. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So, like, is this one song or is this two songs? And it's really, I think, one song. Maybe it's two writers. Maybe it's two authors. I'm not exactly sure. It's two, two contexts, right? So it's, it's Moses, but it's also the song of the Lamb. Because here at the point of redemption his, history, the, the hero of the story is, is not Moses. It's the Lamb. The one who's obtained the victory through the shedding of his own blood on the cross. The one in chapter 14, verse 1, who's standing on Mount Zion in victory with his 144,000 who are redeemed from the earth, perhaps symbolic of all who are redeemed from the whole earth. And the song they sang is a song of victory to the Lord. And here is the the song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. You say, well, what are these deeds? I think the best way to look at that is the deeds of of Revelation that we've seen throughout the book of Revelation. These are the judgment deeds. From the opening of the seals of judgment in Revelation chapter 6 to the angels blowing their trumpets in chapters 8 to 9. From claiming the kingdom of the world in chapter 11 to defeating the dragon in chapter 12 and casting him down to earth, such are the deeds of God and of the Lamb. And and they are great and amazing. And I hope as you just reflect back on Revelation, what we've read, you just say, wow, those those are quite amazing things that God has done. The song continues, just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. Lest you think that the judgments poured out in Revelation some way are unfair in any way. It's if those afflicted didn't deserve it. Just think again. God's ways are just. God's ways are true. As king of the nations, the Lord can do as he pleases, but he always acts in faithfulness without iniquity. Now, what's interesting here, in verse 3, there's some hints of the other song of Moses that appears in Deuteronomy 32. And that song there is much longer, so I'm not going to read that entire song there. We won't even be turning there. You can turn there for your own study later. But I want to read one of the verses. In verse 4, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. Just listen to this. The rock 
His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. It's almost exactly the the praise here in verse 3. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. And God, He's the rock, His way is perfect, for all His ways are justice, Deuteronomy 32 says. Everything he does, even the way he judges, there's no iniquity in his judgment. He judges perfectly and impartially. In fact, that's what Deuteronomy 34, 32 is about. It's about the justice of God. It, it's about the judgment of God. In fact, that is that chapter 32, verse 35 says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. It comes in that passage. Deuteronomy 32, verse 36 says the Lord will vindicate his people. He'll judge and vindicate both these things happening. This, by the way, Deuteronomy 32, is where Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, comes from. Their steps shall slip in due time. Deuteronomy 32 is about judgment. And it ends with these words, the very last verse. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. It's an invitation really to worship the Lord. Uh, when, when you get through and you see all his ways, his judgment is, is true and just. And when he's been kind to people, they've turned away from him. He is just in condemning them. And then he ends. In light of all that, O oh, people's right, rejoice in the Lord. Trust in him. Worship him. Which is exactly what verse 4 here in Revelation 15 is about. It's an, it's an invitation to worship. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And really, this is our our application this morning. Will you fear the Lord this morning? Will you glorify the Lord today? We've seen the book of Revelation, just how holy the Lord is. How his righteous acts are revealed. In fact, so much even here that, that, that all the nations will, will come to him. But are you joining that throng? Coming to him and, and worshiping him? Will you sing the song of Moses and the Lamb, fearing the Lord and trusting in his name, glorifying his name? It's really the challenge for us. Will we be on that side? Will we be singing that song? Well, our third point here this morning, we've seen a sign, a song, and a sanctuary. This, by the way, was hinted at at the end of, uh, of Exodus 15, speaking about God and the sanctuary. After this, I looked, verse 5, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. Here's this heavenly sanctuary. And if you read Hebrews, you find out that, that God showed Moses this, this pattern in the heaven of how to make the earthly tabernacle. And so here we're talking about the heavenly pattern not the constructed earthly tabernacle, the wilderness in Moses' day, or, or the temple in Solomon's day. Both of them were patterned, though, after this, this uh, tent in heaven. And, and John here, it says, the sanctuary of the tent of witness, right? It's the, the holy place of the tent of witness. Probably talking about the inner sanctuary where the, the Ark of the Covenant was, where the mercy seat was, where God chose to dwell, where his very presence was there. And the sanctuary, it says here, was, was open. And we see what was inside. And out of the sanctuary came seven angels. Verse 6. Came the seven angels of the seven plagues. Now this brings us back to verse 1 of what, what John saw. Only here he describes their appearance. They're clothed in pure 
bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. There was someone else who was clothed in uh, <clears throat> bright linen with golden sash around his chest. Do you remember who that was? Sunday school kids, right? What's the answer? Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 13, Jesus, John saw him clothed with a, a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. I think these angels have picked up on the clothing trend that Jesus started. And they just followed in his ways. You say, well, let's just make them Jesus. No, they're not. I think as George Eldon Ladd said in his commentary, the clothing of these angels is designed to enhance the splendor of these celestial beings. Pure and holy and righteous are these beings coming out of the sanctuary. And then we see some action in verse 7. And one of the four living creatures, right? These are the four living creatures who are around the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now again, this prepares us now for chapter 16 when the bowls of wrath are poured out on the earth which will finish the wrath of God. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. With them... With these plagues, with these bulls, the wrath of God is finished. Right? But until these bulls are poured out, nothing more will enter the sanctuary. Look at verse 8. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Just the, the throne room there was a, a smoky place. When Isaiah saw the throne, he saw the Lord sitting on the throne and the train of his robe filling the temple. Just got this idea of just the, the consuming nature of God. And, and the smoke didn't come from him smoking cigarettes or cigars or pipes. It came from the glory of God was the, the smoke that was arising that prevented you from even seeing there in the sanctuary. It's a bit like when God first filled the tabernacle in Moses' day. Exodus 40, 34 and 35. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Moses couldn't enter, couldn't come in because the glory of the Lord was there. It's like when God's glory filled the temple in Solomon's day. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1. As soon as Solomon finished praying his prayer of dedication... Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And verse 2 says, And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. There's something about the presence of God, the, the glory of God, that spills over here in a smoky presence that you cannot even enter. You see that in Revelation 15, right? That God sends out his angels to pour out his wrath. And seemingly he shuts himself in the sanctuary until all is finished. And no one can enter there. Even the holiest of angels could not enter into that holy place. And the best I can do here is kind of picture a president who, who launches right, the military code, presses that button, launches it, and then locks himself in the situation room and says, right, no one can come in. Right? We've got to stay here until we figure out what happened. It's the wrath of God. We'll look at next time we're in Revelation in chapter 16 after the Advent season. So I think about, so what do we do with all this? We see the, the wrath potentially coming. But we see the song of Moses, this, this song of victory. We find out that the only way that 
we can come before God is, is the only way that we can, right? Through the blood of Christ, through the, the blood of this victorious Lamb. Because you will either be on Mount Zion or you will face the wrath of these bulls. Now, what's interesting here is I, I think there's a way to think back if we can think about these, these plagues. There was a way out of this plague, particularly this last plague. The, last, the way out of this last plague, I'm not sure if you remember, from Exodus chapter 12, tells the story of the Passover. And how blood was applied to the lintel of the house. I want to just read some of it in Exodus chapter 12. And, and again, this is leading up to the Lord's Supper here we're going to celebrate, which, which was celebrated at Passover. And then after that, Jesus transformed that Passover to the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate every four to six weeks or so. Exodus 12, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month for you should be the beginning of months. It should be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. He says, if it's too small for a lamb, then combine together. He says, your lamb should be without blemish, a male year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it till the fourteenth day of the month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is together, you shall kill the lambs at twilight. You shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintels of the houses in which you eat. So how, how can you avert that, that wrath, that day of the wrath that, that, that's coming out? Well, for those in Israel, they, they took that lamb that they, they killed and they, they painted their, their doorposts or their lintels. And it says in Exodus 12, verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all their gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. But the blood should be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The picture of of the coming of Jesus, the the blood of Jesus is what averts the, the wrath of God. No, we don't apply the the physical blood of Jesus to the doors of our houses. Rather, it's through faith that we trust in the the sacrifice of Christ and apply His blood to the door of our hearts so that when God looks down upon us, He's going to pour out His wrath. He he doesn't pour out upon us because He sees the blood of Jesus on our hearts that is there through faith in Christ. He passes over our sin. And this is the pattern of the Lord's Supper. It is right here. Is it that Jesus talked about on the night we was betrayed? He, he said, Listen, right, this bread is my body, this, this cup is my, my blood, and I'm going, and this is for you. He's called in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, he's called the, uh, the Passover. He's called our Passover. And I think it's appropriate here as we're in Revelation chapter 15, thinking about Moses and thinking about the victory and thinking about the plagues, and how did they avert that last plague? Through the blood of Christ. I thought that was a great transition for us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. So I want you to just bow your heads. I'm going to spend a time, a, a brief time here of silence. Um, just examining the hearts before the Lord. Perhaps the Lord will pierce your own heart and you say, boy, I need to repent and turn from this sin or that sin. Because none of us will stand on our own before the Lord. We need the blood of the Lamb. So 1 Corinthians 11 even tells us to examine ourselves before we eat the bread and drink the cup. And in light of Revelation, the idea here, I think, is to examine yourself 
Whether you are with the Lamb, following the Lamb wherever He goes. Whether you are enduring and following after what He says, embracing Him as the one who who was worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals and to be slain, purchasing people for God. You being one of them because you're believing and trusting in Jesus. And realizing also in this, in this moment here that the bread and the cup don't save us, they don't do anything, but it's an opportunity for us to remember and to pledge and to say, I have placed my faith completely in the trust of Christ. It's his blood alone that will, will save me and forgive me. And eating and drinking this way is just an ordinance that God has given us. So examine your hearts, trust the Lord, and if you're believing in Him, trusting in Him, repenting your sin, then celebrate the supper with us. God, I pray that you'd be with us. We often call this communion, where we commune with you in a special way that we don't do in our homes. God, that we don't do oftentimes. What we do um, when we gather together as a church, really reflecting upon the the crucified Lord who died for our sins. And in this rejoice, so may this be a time of celebration as we again reflect and look to the cross and realize that the the hope of the Advent season of this this baby to be born, to be the king, who actually died for our sins and is becoming king as we see here in Revelation as time time comes on and, and we anticipate the end when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. God, we look forward to the time when he reigns forever And even eating the bread and drinking the cup, God, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Say, yes, he's died. Yes, he's risen again. He's going to come again and establish his kingdom is what Revelation is speaking about. And it just says as we eat the bread and drink the cup, it's our prayer. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.